Good morning. I hope you had an incredibly Merry Christmas yesterday and that you were able to enjoy that with family, with friends. Um, that's a special day, huh? Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And, and while you're doing that, I just want to say a special Merry Christmas and welcome to the children in the room. Welcome, children. Uh, if you don't know, today is a family service. It's something that uh, we haven't done very often here at Grace, but something I'm so incredibly excited that we are doing. Um, I think it's an incredibly appropriate thing for us to be doing to have children with us in this sort of gathering so that they could see what happens when the church assembles. They could participate in that. They could watch you parents as you worship, as you engage. Um, I could go on and on and on and give, I think, several sermons about why I think this is a good thing we're doing today. Um, and so on that note, if you're one of those people that struggles when children are around, I want to urge you to push down that curmudgeonly attitude and, and realize that this is something that I think honors the Lord. And so it might very well be a little bit louder, a little bit more distracting than we have sometimes uh, here in our gathering. And uh, I just want you to know that I think that's a sound that, that uh, lifts up to the Lord and blesses him. On that note, children, did you have a good Christmas yesterday? Yeah. Uh, any, any special presents or presents that you really loved yesterday? Th throw some out for me. I want to hear them. Pogo stick? Nice. Yeah. What was it? A, a globe? Oh, nice. That sounds great. What is it? Jackets. Excellent. Binoculars. Nice. Bottle rockets. Excellent. Bottle. Oh, okay. There we go. I was like, okay. Excellent. Yeah, Henry. Shoes. There you go. Excellent. Well, uh, I'm so glad that you uh, had Christmas and you received gifts, and I hope those reminded you of the good gift that Jesus is to us. Uh, we get to celebrate him on Christmas, and we get to celebrate him year round. Um, now, if you have heard me before, you might know that I can get opinionated about Christmas and Christmas songs in particular. I think that, that we should sing about the birth of Jesus uh, and the joy that comes with that year round. I will argue that to the, to the death. But um, I also think it's quite appropriate for us to reflect on and remember Christ's birth year round, uh, to preach about Christ's birth year round. Uh, this has massive implication for who we are and the lives that we live year round and for who we are as a church year round. And so um, I, I think it's a little early for us to speed past the coming of our Lord Jesus just one day after Christmas. And so today we are going to spend some more time reflecting on Christ and his birth. And we're going to do so by uh, orienting our time around a couple lines from the Apostles' Creed. Um, Apostles' Creed, for those of you who are unaware, is a massively important document that was produced very early in the life of the church 
And ever since, it's played an important role in the life of the church. It's not scripture. It doesn't possess the same authority of scripture. It's not breathed by God in such a way where it is going to bind our consciences such that uh, such as if God is actually speaking. Nevertheless, it's important because at the heart of the Apostles' Creed is a question. And that question is, what do Christians believe? What do Christians believe? What's what's at the center of Christianity? What's that thing that we together confess? What, What is mere Christianity? And so for about 2,000 years, the church has used this creed, this document, as a tool to teach Christians, usually younger Christians, oftentimes children, what Christianity is all about, what the Christian faith is all about, what's the core of Christianity. There's more to Christianity than this creed, but there's not less to Christianity than this creed. So, um, in short, the things that this creed declares These are things that the church unites around. There's lots of differences out there. There's lots of things we disagree on, lots of things where local churches might be in slightly different places or denominations make different decisions, but this is what we gather around. This is what we believe. And so with that said, we're gonna throw this creed up on the the screens, and we're gonna read aloud together, and then uh, we'll make some comments and dive into the scripture. So um, if we could throw that up there. I'm going to start, and if you would, just read along with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. All right. Now, did you notice the line conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? Now, what I'm saying to you this morning is that Christians everywhere believe this to be an essential truth. Christians believe this. This is part of our creed. Um, how many of you are basketball fans? Uh, how many of you have watched the NBA? Now, for some of you who are younger, this may be uh, a player who was around well before your time, but there was once a well-known electric NBA player named Allen Iverson. And anytime Allen Iverson was on TV, it was must-watch TV, just an absolutely electric basketball player. And a year after being the best player in the NBA, almost winning a championship, almost beating Junior's beloved Lakers, uh, AI was asked a question about his approach to practice. He was sort of famously lackadaisical when it came to practice. And here's what Allen Iverson said in response to the criticisms he faced related to practice. 
We're sitting in here, and I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're sitting in here talking about practice. I mean, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Not a game, not the game I go out there and die for and play in every game like it's my last game. Not the game, we're talking about practice, man. Uh, AI said the word practice 22 times in his famous rant. And the idea is pretty clear here. Games are essential. Games are what matter. Practice isn't essential. Practice doesn't really matter. Well, many Christians... I believe, and I think maybe some of us in this room can be tempted to believe that Jesus' conception and virgin birth are a little bit like practice for AI. It's something that might be important. It's something that's, that's certainly very interesting, but it's not essential. It's something that's okay to not be uh, given a lot of effort and a lot of thought to, we can kind of just let it go to the back of our minds and not be too concerned about this. And if that's you, I just want you to know that you uh, do not have an original idea. You know, the, the Apostles' Creed wasn't just written f- for kicks and giggles. It, it, it addressed things. And it ensured that that the core of Christianity was spoken to and maintained, and so it addressed real-life people who had real-life concerns and real-life qualms with the things that Christianity is all about. Since the very beginning of the church, people have wrestled with the idea of Jesus' birth. For some, it just seemed too bizarre, too miraculous. It seemed weird. It seemed like it breaks the brain a little bit. And so we, we can't really say that we believe that Jesus was, was born of a virgin, right? Or that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Th- those are, those are these, these sorts of things that don't make a whole lot of sense to us. And so we just move past that. Well, people have felt that way for many, many years. But Christians believe this line in the creed to be true that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now the question becomes, do you believe that to be true? Do we believe that to be true? You know, the more and more I'm tasked with teaching my children the faith, the basics of Christianity, the more I'm confronted with these sorts of things and I go, huh, do I really believe this stuff? Do do I really uh, hold something as simple as the birth of Jesus in my heart and believe that and cherish it and allow it to produce something in me. All the stuff that we sing about at Christmas, is that just platitude? Is that just sentimentality? Uh, Or is it something that fuels faith? Well, today, I want to show you that Jesus' miraculous conception of the Spirit And birth by a virgin is not something we can ignore. It's not something that we can push to the back of our heads and not think about. No, it is something that we cannot agree to disagree on. It's an essential truth that holds incredible weight for us today and should produce so much joy 
as well. And so um, I want to get into the why of that. But before we do, I think it's important to just see the plain truth that this is grounded in the Bible. So I'm going to read a couple passages of Scripture that I think show us that this idea is not from make-believe land, but from the Bible. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then Luke 1, 26 through 34. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, um, before we say anything about the importance of Jesus' birth, we need to see the plain fact that it is biblical. Now, um, this is true for everyone, but especially just for the children in this room, I want you to know something. My job in front of you, and any preacher you're ever going to hear, our job is not to tell you our opinions. It's not to make things up to try to entertain you. It's to teach you what the Bible says. It's to help you grapple with the Bible, and not just the Bible, but the God of the Bible, the God who speaks and so I'm not up here today to just try to tell you funny jokes or stories uh, or make things up, but to tell you what the Bible says. And this is what the Bible says. We see Jesus' birth foretold in the Old Testament, and we see it realized in the New Testament. The scriptures don't say that it may have happened or it may not have happened. They tell us quite clearly what did happen. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, and he was born of a virgin to his mother, Mary. These are the facts. These are the facts of Scripture. The Scriptures testify to these things. And so we must hold to these truths as irrefutable, because if we don't, there are consequences. If this didn't really happen, there are consequences. There's consequences if this is true, and there's consequences if this is false. And so, uh, we want to look now at a passage of Scripture 
that's going to, I think, um, beautifully uh, help unpack the reality of Jesus' birth and who exactly came uh, when Jesus was born. And in this, we're going to see three things that Jesus' conception and birth testified to, three things that I think are really good news for us. One, Jesus is fully God. Two, Jesus is fully man. And three, because of all of this, Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the Savior of the world. So, um, let me pray and we'll dive in. Father, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for the life we have in his name. I thank you, Lord, that some 2,000 years ago, uh, light really did step into darkness. And because of that, the light of the gospel is shown to us uh, and that we can have life in Jesus' name. So now, Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we go to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Jesus is fully God. Uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 and 6. If you would put your eyes there and follow along with me. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now here in these two verses, especially in verse six, we see what I think the Apostles' Creed is getting at when it says that Jesus is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is special. He's different. He's not like us. Verse six says that Jesus was in the form of God but he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. The passage is saying what lots of other places in scripture says, Jesus is God. He's the same stuff as God. He's the same essence. And the way the church has put this and understood this in the past is that God has one nature, but exists in three persons. He exists as Father and his Son and his Holy Spirit from eternity past. And so what this is telling us is is that Jesus is God. And he's not a little bit God, he's fully God. And he didn't become God, he's always been God. There's never been a time that Jesus wasn't God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And, And so when the creed comes along and says that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, it's making a point. Jesus didn't come into existence like all of us. His becoming a man was entirely unique and an entirely special thing because he is unique. The identity of the one who came was something special. And this means so much. Uh, We can and do often preach about what this means and it can take up an entire year's worth of sermons. In short, for our purposes today, it means that Jesus isn't weighed down by the same things that we're weighed down by. He doesn't possess a sin nature like we possess. His purity and his perfection as the Son of God are maintained. Jesus is a man, but he is no mere man. He is God. So this is what the creed declares. Jesus is fully God. And this is what the scriptures testify to. But Jesus is not only God. Jesus is fully man. So verses 7 and 8 in Philippians. 
chapter 2. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is fully God. He's also the second person of the Trinity. So, so that's incredible. I'm just absolutely incredible. The second person of the Trinity is who we're talking about. Fully God is who we're talking about. Yet at the very same time, here we see that Jesus has taken on a new nature. Philippians 2 says that Jesus empties himself. He empties himself. Now, how, how would God go about emptying himself? My sons have a bin of monster trucks that they love. And it's pretty common once a day or like seven times a day for them to come along and to just pour that bin out. So there is nothing left in it. All monster trucks on the ground, empty bin. Is that the idea here? Jesus is emptying himself of his divinity. He's pouring out all of, all of the godness that exists within him. Is that what's being described here in Philippians 2? Jesus used to possess all of this divinity. Now he's poured it out and he becomes like a man. No. And this is astounding. Jesus empties himself by taking on the form of a servant. Jesus empties himself by adding a new nature. That could be a brain twister, but this is what the scriptures testify to. He empties himself by becoming a man, by becoming like us, really like us. This is what the creed wants us to get because Jesus, who was God, was literally born to Mary. He became a man and God dwelt with us, not as an angel who paraded as a man, not as God who wore sort of a man cloak, but as a real life man, he became like us. This is how Augustine puts it. Augustine, this, this quote has been read from the stage many times. I've read it from the stage, but it beautifully captures the idea. Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Can you see the humility in Jesus? Can you see how ridiculous it is that the maker of the heavens and the earth would add to himself humanity. He who is not bound by anything would willingly bind himself in love. And so Jesus came to this earth and he came as a real life man. He didn't masquerade as a man. He wasn't a myth. He wasn't make-believe. He, was taking, he wasn't taking up temporary residence in another person's body, possessing them. No, God took humanity upon himself. Jesus is a man. So this is what the creed is saying at its most basic level. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, so he is God. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, so he is a man. So what? 
Why does this matter? What does this have to do with us? What does it mean for us? Because these things are true, Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the Savior of the world. Uniquely qualified to be the Savior of the world. And we see that so wonderfully and beautifully here in Philippians 2. Uh, 9 through 11, if you would follow along with me. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And these verses, they pack, unpack for us the incredible reality that because Jesus is God, and because Jesus became a man in humility and love, Jesus ultimately went to the cross in our place, and he bore our sin upon his shoulders. And as a result of all of this, God has highly exalted him and set him up as Lord of all. And here's how Romans 8 puts it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So this passage is saying that God sent Jesus, who was God, as a man, to die as a man. Why? So that the righteous requirements of the law could be met. And what are the consequences? Verse 1, Romans 8, verse 1 says, There is now, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I want to tell you uh, a brief story about a man named Taylor Smith. Taylor was uh, a football star in Dallas, Texas, a little over a decade ago. And uh, when he was in high school, he came to this new school at the age of 16, uh, transferred in. Um, tragically, both of his parents had died. And so he was going and, and making a new fresh start, a new school district, new school. And all he wanted to do was play football. And, and so they put him on the football team. And sure enough, he was actually pretty good. And, and he started doing a really great job. And, and his team started to have a lot of success because of how good he was at football. He was smart, he was strong, he was fast. He just, he just had it when it came to football. Now, the only problem was is that Taylor Smith was a con artist and he was actually a uh, 25-year-old man. <laughs> and, uh, and the thing was is, is Taylor Smith loved football so much that he would, every fall, uh, masquerade as a 16-year-old, and he'd transfer to a new school, and he would get on the football team, and he'd play until he got found out. And so he got found out every year, about 10 different times, and he would be disqualified. But guess what? Not only would Taylor Smith be disqualified from 
playing football because he was a grown man playing with children, but also all of the accomplishments that his team uh, uh, had during that time, they were all voided. No more, no more championships, no more titles, uh, no more records. All of those were done away with because this man was not eligible to play. Now, why? Why would that be the case? Because Smith didn't meet the requirements to play high school football, and his team didn't meet the requirements to field a high school football team. They weren't eligible to receive any sort of reward. Their accomplishments meant nothing. In order to win a championship, you have to be eligible to play. That's the idea. That's the point. Now, I asked you children about your Christmas presents earlier. What if today, the day after Christmas, someone comes along and they say, sorry, we actually found out that your Christmas presents were stolen from your next door neighbors and given to you, so we're gonna have to take those back. You can't have those anymore. Yeah, just a terrible thing, right? What if they're gone? No more Christmas presents for you. Now, that would be terrible, but now let's think for a second about an even worse reality. What if, or potential reality, what if the great gift of Christmas, Jesus himself, the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting, what if those were taken back? What if we found out that Jesus wasn't who he said he was? If he wasn't the real deal, and so all those things that that he brought, that he accomplished, peace on earth and goodwill towards men, a forgiveness of sins, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. What if all of those were taken off the table? Do you see how Jesus' virgin birth could actually have a profound effect on our lives and our future and our hope and our joy? This is the idea that we're seeing in the Apostles' Creed. I want to try to sum this idea up here as best as I can. Our sin has ruined everything. Absolutely everything. We jacked up God's good design for this world and our lives. And more than anything, God has separated us and alienated us from God. And so we deserve sin and death. That's the deal. And this is a terrible place to be. We need a savior. We need a perfect human savior. One who is like us, who can stand for us, who can represent us who could be our champion, winning for us salvation, for we have so compromised ourselves. The problem is, is no champion exists. Every other human who could stand in our place is just like us, compromised by the same stuff that we're compromised by. They have the same sort of nature that we have. No one is righteous. No, not one. There's no one to stand on our behalf. But God said he was going to do something about our helpless estate. All the way back in Genesis 3, he said the seed of the serpent might bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. In other words, God was going to send a seed of the woman, a child, to come and deal with the consequences and the realities of sin. And he did. And so God sent 
his son, fully God, perfect, righteous, pure, to become a man, fully man, so that he would be like us. And his son was Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who was despised and rejected, who died upon the cross in our place, and he rose to life three days later. And in doing this, Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He came in just the right way, at just the right time. He came in a valid way, in an eligible way, so that he might become the savior of the world, so that he might be our champion, so that he might provide life and light, forgiveness of sins, so that we could have a present joy and a hope for tomorrow and forever in his name. What does that mean? It means that we can have Christmas morning with the assurance that the very best gift that is given to us, Jesus, his life and his salvation, his forgiveness of sins, that these things will never be taken away from us if we are his, if we believe in him. So what do we do? You know, the whole point of the creed, the Apostles' Creed, is that we confess our belief. We say we believe, we believe in the Father, we believe in the Son, we believe in the Spirit. And so what do we do? We believe. And as we consider Christmas, this great thing that we celebrated yesterday in this entire past season, we believe in Jesus and we believe in his miraculous conception. We believe in his virgin birth. We recognize that God has worked supernaturally in order to fulfill everything that needed to happen so that we might be saved, so that we might have life. And we store this up in our hearts and we cherish it, just like Mary did in, when Mary sang her wonderful song of praise and delight in the God who was working through her. In Luke 1, we see this. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. We let Mary's example of faith guide us We cherish the fact that God came in just the right way at just the right time in order to become the savior of the world and the savior for us as individuals. We believe that because of all of this, the great gift of Christmas, Jesus, along with his salvation and life, will never be taken away from us. They're ours forever. And so my hope and my prayer is is that as we consider this Jesus today and as we consider his, his birth and the nature of his birth and, and who he is, this, this wouldn't just be some, some nice songs we'd sing. It wouldn't just be a season that's closed and now we're off to, ne- to new great things. But instead, we would truly believe in Christ and we would let this belief fuel hope and joy that that would carry on into the new year, and that would carry on into the year to come in a way that results in not just good for us, but good for those who are near us and anywhere in our vicinity. So may the Lord work this, this hope and joy in us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your son Jesus, and that we can gather together in his name today because he is 
both fully God and fully man. Uh, He is the savior of the world. He is the one who has light and life in him. And, And Lord, because those who believe in him are given the right to become your children. Because of Jesus, you receive us and accept us. Because of Jesus, our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. Because of Jesus, uh, we can truly have Christmas and celebrate Christmas and rejoice in Christmas knowing that one day he'll return for us. Father, I pray that that would fuel us today. That would fuel hope and joy even in the midst of of sorrow and the sadness and, and living in a world that's broken. Father, I pray that you would bless us with the hope of Christmas today. We thank you for a chance to gather as your church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.